All right. We are back. Political theory and um, other stuff. We are on Twitter at polytheorypod. The email is and.um.otherstuff at gmail.com. And if you really want to be kind to us, the Patreon is Patreon backslash polytheory and um, other stuff. I'm Mike. He's Paul. We are reading an introduction to the three volumes of Karl Marx's Capital by Michael Heinrich. And we are at chapter one, section 1.2. Paul, do you want to start us off? Yeah. This section is entitled The Emergence of the Workers' Movement. <clears throat> All right. Not only was the development of appropriately large fortunes a precondition for the development of industrial capitalism, it also involved the freeing of forces of labor, people who were no longer subject in feudal relations of dependency, who were formally free and therefore had the possibility for the first time to sell their labor power, yet also were free from every source of income, who possessed no land they could cultivate in order to survive, and thus were forced to sell their labor power to survive. Uh, so some obviously key differences between feudalism and capitalism. Uh, you know, feudalism had markets, things of that nature, um, but you generally lived and cultivated things you didn't know. Uh, you started the season already owing uh, a certain amount to, say, the church, say, to the kingdom. Uh, and then possibly if you had any extra, you could go to markets with that. Once again, markets exist, not capitalism. Um, uh, continuing, small peasant farmers who had been impoverished or expelled from their land, uh, in parentheses, landlords had often transformed cropland into pasture land, since this was more profitable, in parentheses, as well as ruined artisans and day laborers constituted the core of this proletariat, which was often forced into permanent wage labor by the deployment of the most brutal state violence, persecution of vagabonds and beggars, the erection of so-called workhouses. The emergence of modern capitalism was not a peaceful, but a rather deeply violent process, concerning which Marx wrote in Capital, begin the quote, if money, according to Aguirre, comes into the world with a congenial bloodstain on one cheek, capital comes dripping from head to toe, from every pore, with blood and dirt. Uh, and it's, I think that's just really important to remember that, uh, uh, in opposition to that idea that capital was a natural state uh, and something that humans just slid into um, for uh, the beginning stages of it, it was forced onto uh, the population with violent um, tactics, with terrible legislation, things of that nature, or uh, judicial proceedings, I guess I should say. Uh, as the cost of enormous human sacrifice, industrial capitalism developed in Europe, initially in England. At the beginning of the 19th century, workdays of up to 15 or 16 hours and labor forced upon children of 6 or 7 years of age were just as widespread as extremely unhealthy and hazardous conditions of work, and for, and for all that, wages were hardly sufficient for survival. Resistance arose against these conditions from various quarters. Workers sought higher wages and better working conditions. The means used to achieve these goals varied and ranged from petitions to strikes to militant battles. Strikes were frequently put down violently through the deployment of police and the military, and the first trade unions were often persecuted as insurrectionary, insurrectionary associations. Their leaders often convicted as criminals. Throughout the entire 19th century, battles were carried out for the recognition of trade unions and strikes as a legitimate means of struggle. 
With time, enlightened citizens and even individual capitalists criticized the miserable conditions under which a large part of the constantly growing proletariat vegetated during the course of industrial industrialization. Ultimately, the state was forced to notice that the young men who were subject to an, at an early age to the overly long work hours of the factories were no longer suitable for military service. Partially under pressure from the increasingly strong working class, partially due to the insight that capital and the state needed halfway healthy people, his forces of labor, and his soldiers, the factory laws were introduced in the 19th century, again with leading the way. Uh, obviously, it's just a sentence, and it was written by Heinrich, um, but I do think it's important to realize um, that uh, a big part of this was that they realized they needed halfway healthy people for workers. Um, this wasn't, uh, a lot of this wasn't posed as a, a humanitarian effort, but more like, oh my God, we're losing profits because our workers can't work as well as we need them to. Uh, minimal health protections for employees were mandated. While the minimum age for child labor was raised and the maximum daily working hours for child laborers lowered. Ultimately, the working time for adults was limited. In most sectors, a normal workday of 12 and later 10 hours was introduced. During the 19th century, the workers' movement grew increasingly strong, and there emerged trade unions, workers' associations, and ultimately also workers' political parties. With the extension of suffrage, which was initially limited to property owners, or more precisely, property-owning males, the parliamentary fractions of these parties continued to grow. A constant source of debate was the question concerning the goal of the struggle of the workers' movement. Was the issue merely that of a reformed capitalism or of the abolition of capitalism? Also debated was the question of whether states and governments were opponents that should be fought just as much as capital or whether they were possible coalition partners who merely needed to be convinced of the proper perspective. Uh, this all should be uh, fairly familiar to anybody living in the year 2021 in America. Um, since the first decades of the 19th century, there emerged an abundance of analysis of capitalism, utopian conceptions of socialism, reform proposals, and strategic blueprints as to how particular goals were to be best achieved. From the middle of the 19th century onwards, Marx and Engels won increasing influence within these debates. Toward the end of the 19th century, both had already died, but Marxism was dominant within the inter international workers' movement. However, even back then, it was questionable as to how much this Marxism, in quotes, had anything to do with Marx's theory. And that is section 1.2. And I, uh, I just wanted to say that I think that I'm interested at some point to learn more about the era of what they call primitive accumulation during capitalism because a lot of the or some of the debate in circles on the internet that that I look into and elsewhere some of the debate is around like how how violent a socialist revolution would be and how we want to avoid violence and it would just be interesting to see how truly violent um, that transition was from feudalism to capitalism and it's not to justify uh, future potential violence but it is to say like that um, in one of those documentaries, uh, Slavo Žižek says, you know, Americans uh, want all the good things without the bad. And he is, uh, his, his example is like Diet Coke. Like you want, you want the Coke, but you can't have the bad things in it. Or like he talks about like decaf coffee, you know, or uh, non-alcoholic beer or whatever, you know. And he's just like, the reality is that like 
uh, revolution is violent and to suggest otherwise or to say that a revolution's uh, um, goals are uh, not just because of the violence is um, uh, could be short-sighted in my opinion. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And this is a huge tangent, but uh, I'd also like to see the history of how, you know, there are things that I in my head think might have helped the uh, advancement to capitalism that I'm not sure that I would love to see studies on, i.e. things like the Crusades and stuff, uh, accumulating unbelievable amounts of commodities into certain people's hands, allowing like, you know, it seems like we're not commodities, but wealth. Wealth, yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. It was just like mass wealth mass. extraction from yep. uh, the Middle East, you know? Yep, yep. Yeah. And, wow. uh, or things, you know, like how connected, you know, we've talked about the Anabaptists and stuff. How connected is that to the actual formulation of capitalism? Yep. Does it yep. count as, you know, they slaughtered an entire city? Does that count right. as for capitalism or is it more feudalism? Um, capitalism often pretends that it's uh, not capitalism. Proponents of capitalism often pretend that... Uh, um, socialism has been this horrifically violent failure, uh, and capitalism has just been this like bringing peace and prosperity everywhere it goes. And um, I'm not uh, a historical genius, but um, from my uh, limited knowledge, it seems to not even close to being the case. But yeah, I, I'm not sold on that yet. That's what yeah. I'll say. Okay. <laughs> All right. So we're here at 1.3 Marx and Marxism. Karl Marx. 1818 to 1883 was born in in Tyre or Trier Trier it's Trier Trier yeah Trier Trier yeah it is Trier uh Trier okay he came from an educated petite bourgeois family his father was a lawyer Marx formally studied law in Bonn and Berlin but occupied himself above all else with the then dominant philosophy of Hegel, 1770 to 1881 or 1831. And the young and the young Hegelians, a radical group of followers of Hegel. In 1842-1843, Marx was the editor of the uh, uh, the uh, Rheinische Zeitung. Which, uh, I don't know what Rheinisha is, but Zeitung is just newspaper. Okay. Which functioned as an organ of the liberal Rhineland bourgeois in opposition to the authoritarian Prussian monarchy. In his articles, Marx criticized Prussian policies whereby the Hegelian concept of the essence of the state, namely the realization of the reasonable freedom standing above all class intersects, served as the benchmark of criticism. During the course of his journalistic activity, Marx came into more and more contact with economic questions, which made the Hegelian philosophy of the state appear increasingly dubious. Under the influence of Ludwig Feuerbach, who is 1804 to 1872, a radical critic of Hegel, Marx attempted to take quote, real human beings, quote, as his point of departure rather than Hegelian abstractions. In doing so, he wrote his economic and philosophical manuscripts of 1844, which were never published during his life. In these uh, texts, he developed his theory of alienation, which would go on to enjoy an ex extraordinary reception in the 20th century. Marx attempted to show that under capitalist relations, this the species or the sorry, what were you gonna say, Paul? 
Nothing. Okay. Nothing. Okay. Just in case we wanted to pronounce that word in parentheses. Oh yeah, sorry. Um, I mean, we don't have to. No, no, no. I'd like to. Um, Marx attempted to show that under capitalism, uh, capitalist relations, the species began. Go for it. Uh, Gattungsweisen. Don't know what that means, but but that's how you pronounce it. Okay. <laughs> the human essence of real humans. That is to say, what separates them from animals, namely that they developed the potential and ability through labor, is alienated. Uh, As wage laborers, they do not possess the products of their labor, nor do they control the, the labor process, both being subject to the rule of the capitalist. Communism, the abolition of capitalism, is therefore conceived of by Marx as the transcendence, the transcendence of alienation, as the uh, reappropriation of human species, Gutenweisen, the human essence being uh, by real humans, being by real humans. Okay, so uh, you know. Yeah, I think that's just an important part uh, of the theory uh, of and what the end goals of communism are. You know, it it often gets uh, diluted and things of that nature, but I think, you know the essence of bringing production back to the control of the workers is regaining that humanity within the labor process. Yep. Um, yep, 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 yep. Which is one of the, the huge appeal to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's yeah. being able not... to be a human while you're at work and not yes. just like, oh, we get to talk shit. The coworkers and I get to talk shit, make jokes, share memes. But like the the important parts of what makes labor labor letting those parts once again have human elements yep or letting 100%. letting the humans that are doing that labor be humans all right yep so yep. um all right during his time with uh the the magazine that he did <laughs> yeah. Mar- <laughs> marx got to know frederick Engels, 1820 1895 the son of a factory owner from uh barman i don't know is that Barman? Okay. Barman, today a part of, uh, whoa. Uh, Wupperton? I have no idea. What's uh, fun about this and all of these uh, geographical places they've been giving us is just they could have wrote any words at this point for me. Yep. It's like, oh, yes, Barman, a part of modern Wuppertal. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it does. I mean, obviously, this allows me to Google it. I'm just... Yeah, yeah, but it just reminds me, uh, did you ever read that book in elementary school? Um, I think it was called something like The the Last of the Very Great Wang Doodles or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Uh, Wuppertal yeah. sounds like a place in that book to me. 100%. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> okay, uh, in 1842, for the purposes of completing his training as a merchant, Ingalls was sent by his parents to England and witnessed the misery of the English industrial proletariat. By the end of 1844, there existed between Marx and Engels a close personal friendship that would endure until the end of their lives. In 1845, they jointly wrote The German Ideology, a work unpublished during their lifetimes. I just love how many works uh, fucking Marx and, and Engels, but especially Marx, just wrote and just like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages and then just like put it away just like whatever and then died and didn't make any attempt to publish it or maybe in some situations they did but i know in other situations they just never it was just like 
a way for them to think about things or whatever. And it's just crazy. That, and I'm sure there was some fear involved in where they were at the time yeah. with actually publishing it. But that's a style we should copy, but just never let anybody read our unpublished works. Yeah. Like yeah, they won't exactly. be like good or anything, but upon our death, it might seem very impressive. Right. Like, uh, we did find that Paul and Mike did have thousands of pages of unpublished works. Right. Uh, they remain no unpublished. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they remain unpublished and they will remain unpublished. All right. Right. But um, impressive. No, yes. No. Exactly. Unpublished during their that was intended as a settling of accounts, not only with the, quote, radical young Hegelian philosophers, but also, as Marx later wrote, with our former philosoph- uh, philosophical conscience. In this work, as in the these of theses, sorry, theses on Feuerbach that Marx wrote shortly before the German ideology, Marx and Engels criticized in particular the philosophical conception of a human essence and of alienation, the existing social relations under which people live and work became the object of investigation. Subsequently, the concept of a human species being or or essence no longer surfaces in Marx's work, and he only rarely and vaguely speaks of alienation. In discussions concerning Marx, it is a point of contention as to whether he actually discarded the theory of alienation, or whether he simply no longer placed it at the foreground of his work. The debate as to whether there is a conceptual break between the writings of, quote, Young and others of the old Marx is primarily concerned with this question. Marx and Engels would become widely known through, th- through the Communist Manifesto, published in 1848, shortly before the outbreak of the revolutions of the same year, a programmatic text that was composed under the auspices of the League of Communists, a small revolutionary group that existed only for a short time. In the communist, they may, sorry, they may have existed longer if that name didn't sound so super villainy. Yes, the yes. League of Communists. Yes, like I just, yes. I don't picture good coming up. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, in the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels concisely and succinctly outlined the rise of capitalism, the increasing fierce emerging antagonism between bourgeois and proletariat, and the inevitable or in yeah inevitability of a proletarian revolution this revolution would lead to a communist society based upon the abolition of private property over the means of production after the suppression of the revolution of 1848 marx had a had to flee Germany. He settled in London, which was then the capitalist center par excellence and also the best place to study the development of capitalism. Furthermore, Marx could draw upon the resources of the enormous library of the British Museum. The Communist Manifesto originated from originated more from an ingenious institution rather than from any far-reaching scientific knowledge. Some assertions such as the allegation of an absolute immiseration of the workers were later revised by Marx. Marx had already started to deal with economic literature in the 1840s, but he only began a comprehensive and deep scientific engagement with political economy in London. This led him at the end of the 19 or 1850s 
to the project of a planned multi-volume critique of political economy, for which a series of extensive manuscripts were developed starting in the year 1857, none of which, however, were completed or published by Marx. Among these were the introduction uh, of 1857, the Grundrisse of 1857-1858, and the theories of uh, surplus value of 1861-1863. And like, who would be crazy enough to read that stuff, you know? I just can't imagine a human being reading the Grundrisse. <laughs> uh, I hear the the uh, the theories of surplus value is chill too, um, but uh, I think it's a lot shorter than uh, Grundrisse too. So that's cool. Just just for our audience's benefit, uh, Mike uh, has read the Grundrisse like a baller. Just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, I'm not sure how much I could talk about it though. No, that's okay. I yeah, mean, it's yeah. just the feat in itself is yeah. uh, impressive. Uh, it's, it's kind of like a fucking blind man walking up Everest, you know, it's like he got up there, but he can't really talk about what it looked like anyhow. Um, but he can, he can understand the feelings. Yes. You know? Yeah. 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 For sure. Marx worked on this project until the end of his life, but would publish very little as a prelude the contribution to the critique of political economy, a small text concerning the commodity and money, was published in 1859, but was not continued. Instead, the first volume of Capital came out in 1867, and in 1872, the revised second edition of the first volume was released. Volumes 2 and 3 were brought out after Marx's death by Frederick Engels in 1885 and 1894, respectively. Marx did not limit himself to scientific work. In 1864, he was a, uh, a decisive participant in the founding in London of the International work- Working Men's Association and formulated its inaugural address, which contained its programmatic ideas, as well as a draft of its statutes. In the following years, as a member of the General Council of the International, he exercised considerable influence over its policies, not least through its various national sections. The International supported the founding of social democratic labor parties. In the 1870s, the International was dissolved, partly due to internal conflicts, partly because a centralized organization alongside individual parties had become superfluous. For the social democratic parties, Marx and Engels constituted a short, a sort of think tank. They engaged in an exchange of letters with various party leaders and wrote articles for the social democratic press. They were asked to state their positions concerning the most varied political and scientific questions. Their influence—oh, yeah, their influence was the greatest within the German Social Democratic Party, the SPD, founded in 1869, which developed at a particularly rapid pace and soon served as a model for other parties. Would would you call them socialists just because yes. they had socialist in their name? Well, no, they sorry, these... just a little sorry, cut that out, just a little destiny joke. Yeah, but they, they, but these dudes were socialists for sure. No, um, no, like one hundred percent. Yeah, sorry, that was just a uh, uh, stupid. Yeah, destiny yeah. being stupid. 
or or fucking uh, Richard Wolf, you know. Richard Wolf well, being yeah, stupid, actually, yeah, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. Engels composed a series of popular works for the social democracy, the SPD, in particular, the so-called anti. What is this, Paul? A- anti during. 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 Okay. The anti. During. The anti during. And above all, the short version socialism. Oh, this is this is a cool text too. Socialism, utopian and scientific, which was translated into many languages, was among the most widely read texts of the workers' movement in the period before the First World War. Capital, on the other hand, was usually taken taken note of by only a small minority. In the anti-During, Engels critically engaged with the ideas of Eugene During, a university lecturer in Berlin. During claimed to have developed a new comprehensive system of philosophy, political economy, and socialism, and was able to win an increasing number of adherents in the German social democracy. Sometimes I am just blown away by what these people accomplished in their lifetimes. Like, it I know. It's just fucking everywhere they went it wasn't like ah he was a hit in germany but everywhere else he fucked up it was just like everywhere uh you know marx angles these people were present they just the change or the thought that they provoked around them is just mind-blowing to me honestly yeah yeah well and they didn't even have to be places to impact it right yeah yeah Yeah. um All right. During success rested upon a strong desire within the workers' movement for the, um, whatever this is, yeah, Weltanschauung, or worldview, a comprehensive uh, explanation of the the world, offering an orientation and answers to all questions. After the worst outgrowth of early capitalism had been eliminated, and the everyday existence of wage dependent class within capitalism was somewhat secure a specific social democratic workers culture developed in workers neighborhoods there emerged workers sports clubs workers choral societies and workers education societies excluded from the exalted bourgeois society the bourgeois culture there developed within the working class a parallel everyday life and um, educational culture that consciously attempted to distance itself from its bourgeois counterpart, but often ended up unconsciously mimicking it. Which I think is like such a hard thing to deal against, you know? Like, I think some of that is why, uh, and I might be just totally off face, but, you know, that concept is I think a lot of why capitalism has persevered is that somewhat ability to minimally uh, mimic the bourgeois, if you will. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so it was that at the end of the 19th century, August Beeble, the chairman of the SPD, over the course of many years, was uh, graciously honored in a manner similar to the way that Kaiser Wilhelm II was honored by the petite bourgeois. Within this climate, there emerged the need for a comprehensive intellectual orientation that could be composed to the dominant bourgeois values and worldview in which the working class played no role or merely a subordinate role. Insofar as Engels not only criticized during but also sought to counterpose the correct positions of the sci- of a scientific socialism, he laid the foundations for the worldview of Marxism, which was appreciatively 
uh, taken up in social democratic propaganda and further simplified. This Marxism found its most important uh, representative in Karl uh, Kounsky, uh, 1854 to 1938, who, until the First World War, was regarded as the leading Marxist theoretician, uh, the- theoretician after the death of Engels. What dominated the social democracy at the end of the 19th century under the name of Marxism consisted of a miscellany of rather schematic conceptions, uh, a crudely knitted materialism, a bourgeois belief in progress, and a few strongly simplified elements of Hegelian philosophy and modular pieces of Marxian terminology combined into simple formulas and explanations of the world. Particularly outstanding characteristics of this popular Marxism uh, were an often rather crude economism, ideology and politics uh, reduced to a direct and conscious transmission of economic interests, as well as a pronounced uh, historical determinism that viewed the end of capitalism and the proletariat revolution as inevitable occurrences. Widespread in the workers' movement was not Marx's critique of political economy, but rather this worldview Marxism which played above all an identity-constituting role. It revealed one's place as a worker and socialist and explained all problems in the simplest way imaginable. A continuation and further simplification of this worldview, Marxism, took place within the framework of Marxism-Leninism. Lenin... 1870-1942, who became, who became after 1914 so influential, was intellectually rooted in worldview Marxism. He openly expressed the exaggerated self-confidence of his, quote, Marxism. And this is a quote from Lenin. The teaching of Marx is all-powerful because it is true. It is complete and harmonious, providing men with a consistent view of the universe which cannot be reconciled with any superstition, any reaction, any defense of bourgeois oppression. And that's Lenin, the three sources and three component parts of Marxism. Before 1914, Lenin supported the Social Democratic Center around Karl Kautsky against the left wing, represented by Rosa Luxemburg. 1871 to 1919. His break with the center came at the beginning of the First World War when the SPD voted for war credits requested by the German government. From then on, the split within the workers' movement took its course. A social democratic wing uh, that in the next few decades would move further away, both theoretically and practically, from Marxist theory, and the goal of transcending capitalism stood opposite a communist wing that nurtured a Marxist phraseology and revolutionary rhetoric, but existed above all to justify the zigzags in the domestic and foreign policy of the Soviet Union, such as during the uh, Hitler-Stalin pact. Uh, And it's also just crazy that... uh... I mean, like, imagine that at <laughs> your party, which is clearly uh, anti anything resembling war credits, then just sides with the German government for war credits. Like, that must have been such a, a painful thing for Lenin to just mm-hmm. have to 
to have to watch happen. Um, but all right, well, I guess I will uh, wrap this up, dude. That was a huge section. I didn't quite realize. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, after his death, the communist wing of the workers' movement turned Lenin into a Marxist pillar saint. His polemical writings, most of which were written within the context of contemporary debates within the workers' movement, were honored as the highest expression of Marxist science and were combined with already existing Marxism into a dogmatic system of philosophy, dialectical materialism, history, historical materialism, and political economy. Marxism-Leninism, this variant of worldview Marxism, served above all else an identity-constituting role, and in the Soviet Union, in a particular legitimized, or in, in the Soviet Union in particular, legitimized the political domination of the party and suffocated open discussion. Great things to have happen. Uh, ideas in general circulation today concerning Marx and the Marxian theory, whether these are appraised positively or negatively, are essentially based upon this worldview of Marxism. Readers of the present work might also have certain seemingly self-evident ideas concerning Marxian theory that are derived from this worldview Marxism. But the sentiment Marx expressed to his son-in-law, Paul Lafargue, Lafargue, I'm not sure, sorry, Paul, after the latter gave an account of French Marxism, also applies to a large amount of that which assumed the label of Marxism or Marxism-Leninism over the course of the 20th century. If anything is certain, it is that I myself am not a Marxist. Um, not sure what book that's referring to, but M-E-C-W. It's, I think it's the, uh, fucking, um, Marx Engels collected works. Oh, okay. Okay. It's this stupid, massive fucking tome. I love that they, uh, it's got like Bible. Yes. Yes, exactly. (laughs) 46. Uh, However, this worldview Marxism did not remain the only kind of Marxism. Against the background of the split in the workers' movement into social democratic and communist wings, as well as the disappointment of the revolutionary hopes that existed after the First World War, there developed in the 1920s and 1930s differing and widely diverging variants of a Marxist critique of worldview Marxism. These new currents, which are associated with, among others, Karl Korsch, George Lukacs, Antonio Gramsci, uh, whose prison notebooks were published after the Second World War, Anton Panikowicz, uh, and the Frankfurt School founded by Max Horkheimer, Theodore W. Adorno, and Herbert Marcuse, and often retrospectively aggregated under the label Western Marxism. <clears throat> hold on, hold on. I, I, it's uh, Herbert Marcuse, and Marcuse, then okay. uh, the uh, Lukacs is the... Lukacs. Uh, yeah. And, so, yeah. Okay. yeah. and that's tight, it. Tight. Fuck yeah. Uh, for a long time, Western Marxism only criticized the philosophical and theoretical historical foundations of traditional Marxism, dialectical and historical materialism. The fact that the critique of political economy was often reduced to a Marxist political economy by traditional Marxism and that the comprehensive meaning of the word critique had been lost only reemerged into the view in the 1960s and 70s, uh, which is when I think the introduction to our version of Capital was written. Mm -hmm. Um, As a consequence of the students' movement and the protests against the U.S. war in Vietnam, there was an upsurge of leftist movements beyond and outside of the traditional social democratic and communist parties of the workers' movement, and a renewed discussion concerning Marxist theory. Now, a far-reaching discussion of Marxist critique of political economy emerged. The writings of Louis Althusser, I'm not saying that right. No, uh, no, you got it right. You got it right. Okay. Is it? Okay. Uh, And his associates were very influential in this regard. Althusser 1965, 
Althusser Battle Bar in 1965. Furthermore, the discussion was no longer limited to capital. Other critical economic writings by Marx, such as the Grundrisse, were incorporated by the latter, gaining popularity above all due to Roman Rostalski's book, 1968, for the West German discussion, the writings of Hans-Jörg Bachhaus, collected in Bachhaus, 1997, and Helmut Reichelt's book, 1970, played a central role. Uh, did we get to know the names of those books or we just are right no uh, <laughs> you should just know them that's the yeah, thing yeah that's true, <laughs> that's true. How dare I? <laughs> I do know what the Bach house is so hell yeah uh they provided a new impetus for the new reading of marx's critical economic writings mentioned in the preface preface to the present text the present work also stands within the substantive context of this new reading of Marx. The differences between this new reading and traditional Marxist political economy, merely alluded to in this chapter, will become clear throughout the course of this work. Looking Boom. forward to it. Yeah. God Boom. dang. There's just so much there to to learn about and know about. and uh... Yeah. And it's, you know, uh, I also just, I, I like that he does a good explanation for the tendrils of Marxist thought, if yep. you will. Uh, or like really the important. sex, the sex yeah. of it, you know? Yeah. yeah. And it's, um, uh, I think that's really important to keep in mind and to understand, um, you know, a lot of the discussions that happen today uh, and how it got to the point where so many of Marx's basic tenets, I think, are misunderstood wholeheartedly, at least among uh, uh the American debate sphere. Once again, I, I I don't know enough about Europeans, but I assume they inherently know more. Yeah, um, but 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 I mean, and just the brief history he went over there, uh, you know, makes it pretty clear that there, you know, were problems. Um, there have always been problems as far as uh, different in- interpretations of Marx and and Marx's work, and then also, um, you know, the, whether things are politically advantageous or not when he talks about lenin and the oversimplification and like the the dogmatism those things although i don't justify them and i don't uh and and i think they probably did more harm than good in the long term i can see in the short term why lenin would want to oversimplify in in a hopes of like solidifying his base and his power if that makes sense yeah and it's and i think it's good to remember a few things one uh during this time period it was still maybe infancy is an exaggeration but the beginning stages uh of uh international capitalism it hadn't solidified its mark yet um so you know more simple uh, uh condensed modes of thought would probably be more applicable at that time um and now we live in a world where capitalism is clearly the hegemony and um most people don't even think about other things so you have to get a lot more precise a lot more um i think academic in your uh dismantling of the current system perhaps and and i don't think there's anything wrong with changing either i mean like it's not you know i mean reading a little bit of capital will give you a clear understanding of how many differing opinions there were on capitalism and what capitalism was and you know i mean it's not uh, it's not unique to communism to have multiple you know um sects of thought yeah and and it is uh it is important to be um willing to readjust when you see your own uh, uh shortcomings or your own ignorance you know but i will push back on what you were saying a little bit with the whole um uh sense capitalism hadn't 
uh, uh, hadn't permeated everything. Therefore, it made more sense to to simplify uh, stuff. I think one of the beautiful things about Marx's work is that since it was abstract, uh, in a lot of ways, it could be plugged in anywhere. And a good example of that yeah. that we've read about is like the commodity, right? Like the type of commodities that he talks about in uh, in capital, when he's not being abstract, are like laughable. Half the time you have yeah. to look them up because you never know what he's talking about. But in the beginning, when he's being abstract, he says uh, a commodity has to have exchange value and use value. And that works for 50 thanners and that works for two iPods, right? And that's what's beautiful about it, in my opinion, is that he does find the core essence of things uh, and and talk about them in their like abstract form rather than um, it, like if the book wouldn't have any meaning right now if he just talked about um, you know uh, a commodity is either a horse or a piece of leather or a jacket and that's it and and there's nothing else you know so the I one think- thing I'll say is that it does take him a lot of pages to get there um, sometimes so that for might sure. not yeah. have been like has. Um, uh pamphletable as some of the shit went in and uh, and stuff was putting forward in a simplified uh marxist worldview or whatnot yeah um, um but i i would push the other thing i'll say is like and obviously we're reading it but ho- i would hope that that's what heinrich is doing here right and so i would say that like the best um uh, you know the, the most sought after thinker is someone that can take what Marx does or what Hegel does or, or, or what, um, uh, you know, any of them. do. Uh, Smith, yes. Any of yeah. Them. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. Being yeah. able to make an economic theory understandable is, yes. uh, a, a Herculean task. Absolutely. Really like, Absolutely. Jesus. Um, and we look forward to, uh, diving more into, to what yeah. Heinrich is doing next time. 100% as always. Thanks for learning with us and have a great day.